This is the London Visited podcast on your favourite podcast provider, bringing to you the facts, history and information about different parts of this great capital. If you have been to London, are planning on visiting, live here or just love London from afar, then this is the podcast for you. Hi, I'm Steve and welcome to our podcast. We're here for all things London and to tell you more behind some of the iconic places and people in London's history. In this episode, we go back for part two of our look at the Palace of Westminster. Don't forget to visit and subscribe to our YouTube channel, London Visited, to see videos covering this place and so many others across London. Also, if you love the podcast and the channel, why not join us as a member? Join our group of what we like to call our London Visited Crown Jewels, where there are many different benefits, including a members-only monthly podcast. Have a look by going to patreon.com forward slash London Visited. And now to this week's podcast. Sir Charles Barry's collective design for the Palace of Westminster uses the perpendicular Gothic style, which was popular during the 15th century and returned during the Gothic revival of the 19th century. Barry was a classical architect, but he was aided by the Gothic architect Augustus Pugin. Westminster Hall, which was built in the 11th century and survived the fire of 1834, was incorporated in Barry's design. Pugin was displeased with the result of the work, especially with the symmetrical layout designed by Barry. He famously remarked, All Grecian, sir, Tudor details on a classic body. In 1839, Charles Barry toured Britain, looking at quarries and buildings, with a committee which included two leading geologists and a stone carver. They selected Anston, a sand-coloured magnesian limestone quarried in the villages of Anstone, South Yorkshire, and Mansfield Woodhouse, Nottinghamshire. The two quarries were chosen from a list of 102, with the majority of the stone coming from the former. A crucial consideration was transportation, achieved on water via the Chesterfield Canal, the North Sea and the rivers Trent and Thames. Furthermore, Anston was cheaper and could be supplied in blocks of up to four feet thick and lent itself to elaborate carving. Barry's new palace of Westminster was rebuilt using the sandy-coloured Anston limestone. However, the stone soon began to decay due to pollution and the poor quality of some of the stone used. Although such defects were clear as early as 1849, nothing was done for the remainder of the 19th century, even after much studying. During the 1910s, however, it became clear that some of the stonework had to be replaced. In 1928, it was deemed necessary to use clipsome stone, a honey-coloured limestone from Rutland, to replace the decayed Anston. The project began in the 1930s, but was halted by the outbreak of the Second World War and completed only during the 1950s. By the 1960s, pollution had again began to take its toll. A stone conservation and restoration programme to the external elevations and towers began in 1981 and ended in 1994. The Palace of Westminster has three main towers. Of these, the largest and tallest is the 98.5 metre Victoria Tower, which occupies the southwestern corner of the palace. Originally named the King's Tower because of the fire in 1834, which destroyed the old Palace of Westminster occurring during the reign of King William IV, The tower was an integral part of Barry's original design, of which he intended it to be the most memorable element. The architecture conceived the Great Square Tower as the keep of a legislative castle. 
echoing his selection of the portcullis as his identifying mark in the planning competition, and used it as the royal entrance to the palace and the fireproof repository for the archives of Parliament. The Victoria Tower was redesigned several times, and its height increased progressively. Upon its completion in 1858, it was the tallest secular building in the world. At the base of the tower is the sovereign's entrance, used by the monarchs whenever entering the palace to open Parliament, or for other state occasions. The 15-metre high archway is richly dedicated with sculptures, including statues of Sons George, Andrew and Patrick, as well as Queen Victoria herself. The main body of the Victoria Tower houses 3 million documents of the parliamentary archives in 8.8 kilometres of steel shelves spread over 12 floors. These include the master copies of all Acts of Parliament since 1497 and important manuscripts such as the original Bill of Rights and the death warrant of King Charles I. At the top of the cast iron pyramidal roof is a 22-metre flagstaff from which flies the royal standard, the monarch's personal flag, when the sovereign is present in the palace. On all other occasions, the Union flag flies from the mast. At the north end of the palace rises the most famous of the towers, the Elizabeth Tower, commonly known as Big Ben. At 96 metres, it is only slightly shorter than the Victoria Tower, but much slimmer. Originally known simply as the Clock Tower, the name Elizabeth Tower was conferred on it in 2012 to celebrate the Diamond Jubilee of Elizabeth II. It houses the Great Clock of Westminster, built by Edward John Dent on designs by amateur horologist Edmund Beckett Dennison. Striking the hour to within a second of the time, the Great Clock achieved standards of accuracy considerably impossible by 19th century clockmakers and it has remained consistently reliable since it entered into service in 1859. The time is shown on four dials, seven meters in diameter, which are made of milk glass and are lit from behind at night. The hour hand is 2.7 meters long and the minute hand is 4.3 meters long. The clock tower was designed by Augustus Pugin and built after his death. Charles Barry asked Pugin to design the clock tower because Pugin had previously helped Barry design the palace. In a 2012 BBC4 documentary, Richard Taylor gives a description of Pugin's clock tower. It rises up from the ground in this stately rhythm, higher and higher, before you reach the clock face, picked out as a giant rose, its petals fringed with gold. There's some medieval windows above that, and it hits you the grey, cast iron roof. Its greyness relieved by these delicate little windows, again picked out in gold leaf. And then it rises up again to this grey jet of gold to the higher roof that curves gracefully upwards to a spire with a crown and flowers and a cross. It's elegant, it's grand, it's pretty, and it has this fairy tale quality that makes you proud to be British. Five bells hang in the belfry above the clock. The four quarter bells strike the Westminster chimes every quarter hour. The largest bell strikes the hours, officially called the Great Bell of Westminster. It is generally referred to as Big Ben, a nickname of uncertain origins, which, over time, has been colloquially applied to the whole tower. The first bell to bear this name cracked during testing and was recast. The present bell later developed a crack of its own, which gives it a distinctive sound. It is the third heaviest bell in Britain, weighing 13.8 tonnes. In the lantern at the top of the Elizabeth Tower is the Arton Light, 
which is lit when either House of Parliament is sitting after dark. It was installed in 1885 at the request of Queen Victoria so that she could see from Buckingham Palace whether the members were at work and named after Acton Smee Arton, who was the first commissioner of works in the 1870s. The shortest of the palace's three principal towers at 91 meters, the octagonal central tower stands over the middle of the building, immediately above the central lobby. It was added to the plans on the insistence of Dr. David Boswell Reed, who was in charge of the ventilation of the new Houses of Parliament. His plan called for a great central chimney through which what he called ventilated air would be drawn out of the building with the heat and the smoke of about 400 fires around the palace. To accommodate the tower, Barry was forced to lower the lofty ceiling he had planned for the central lobby and reduce the height of its windows. However, the tower itself proved to be an opportunity to improve the palace's exterior design and Barry chose for it the form of a spire in order to balance the effect of the more massive lateral towers. In the end, the central tower failed completely to fulfill its stated purpose, but it is notable as the first occasion when mechanical services had a real influence on architectural design. Apart from the pinnacles which rise from between the window bays along the fronts of the palace, numerous turrets enliven the building's skyline. Like the central tower, these have been added for practical reasons, a mask of ventilation shafts. There are some other features of the Palace of Westminster which are also known as towers. St Stephen's Tower is positioned in the middle of the west front of the palace, between Westminster Hall and the Old Palace Yard, and houses the public entrance to the Houses of Parliament, known as St Stephen's Entrance. The pavilions in the northern and southern ends of the riverfront are called Speaker's Tower and Chancellor's Tower respectively, after the presiding officers of the two houses at the time of the palace's reconstruction, the Speaker of the House of Commons and the Lord Chancellor. Speaker's Tower contains Speaker's House, the official residence of the Speaker of the Commons. There are a number of small gardens surrounding the Palace of Westminster. Victoria Gardens is open as a public park along the side of the river south of the palace. Black Rod's Garden, named after the office of the Gentleman Usher of the Black Rod, is close to the public and is used as a private entrance. Old Palace Yard, in front of the palace, is paved over and covered in concrete security blocks. Cromwell Green, also on the frontage and in 2006 enclosed by hoardings for the construction of a new visitor centre, New Palace Yard, on the north side, and Speaker's Green, directly north of the palace, are all private and closed to the public. College Green, opposite the House of Lords, is a small triangular green, commonly used for television interviews with politicians. The Palace of Westminster contains over 1,100 rooms, 100 staircases and 4.8 kilometres of passageways, which are spread over four floors. The ground floor is occupied by offices, dining rooms and bars. The first floor, known as the principal floor, houses the main rooms of the palace, including the debating chambers, the lobbies and the libraries. The two top floors are used as committee rooms and offices. Some of the interiors and designs were painted by J.G. Crace, working in collaboration with Pugin and others. For example, Crace decorated and gilded the ceiling of the Chapel of St. Mary Undercroft. Instead of one main entrance, the palace features separate entrances for different user groups of the building. The Sovereign's entrance at the base of the Victoria Tower is located in the southwest corner of the palace, and is the starting point of the royal procession route. 
the suite of ceremonial rooms used by the monarchy at the state openings of Parliament. This consists of the royal staircase, the Norman porch, the robing room, the royal gallery and the prince's chamber and culminates in the lord's chamber where the ceremony takes place. Members of the House of Lords use the peer's entrance in the middle of the old palace yard front, which is covered by a stone carriage porch and opens to an entrance hall. A staircase from there leads through a corridor to the prince's chamber. Members of Parliament enter their part of the building from the members' entrance in the south side of New Palace Yard. Their route passes through a cloakroom in the lower level of the cloisters and eventually reaches the members' lobby, directly south of the Commons' chamber. From New Palace Yard, access can also be gained to the Speaker's Court and the main entrance of the Speaker's House, located in the pavilion at the northeast corner of the palace. St Stephen's entrance, roughly in the middle of the building's western front, is the entrance for the members of the public. From there, visitors walk through a flight of stairs to St Stephen's Hall, location of a collection of marbles, which includes Summers, Mansfield, Hampton, Walpole, Pitt and Vox. Traversing this hallway brings them to the octagonal central lobby, the hub of the palace. This hall is flanked by symmetrical corridors, decorated with fresco paintings, which lead to the anterooms and the debating chambers of the two houses. The members' lobby and the commons' chamber to the north, and the peers' lobby and the lords' chamber to the south. Another mural-lined corridor leads east to the lower waiting hall and the staircase to the first floor, where the riverfront is occupied by a row of 16 committee rooms. Directly below them, the libraries of the two houses overlook the Thames from the principal floor. The grandest entrance to the Palace of Westminster is the Sovereign's Entrance, beneath the Victoria Tower. It was designed for the use of the monarch, who travels from Buckingham Palace by carriage every year for the state opening of Parliament. The Imperial State Crown, which is worn by the Sovereign for the ceremony, as well as the Cap of Maintenance and the Sword of State, which are symbols of royal authority and are borne before the monarch during the procession, also travel to the palace by coach, accompanied by members of the royal household. The regalia, as they are collectively known, arrive some time before the monarch and are exhibited in the royal gallery until they are needed. The sovereign's entrance is also the formal entrance used by visiting dignitaries, as well as the starting point of public tours of the palace. From there, the royal staircase leads up to the principal floor, with a broad, unbroken flight of 26 steps made of grey granite. The staircase is followed by the Norman porch, a square landing distinguished by its central clustered column and the intricate ceiling it supports, which is made up of four groin vaults with learned ribs and carved bosses. The porch was named for its purpose decorative scheme, based on Norman history. In the event, neither the planned statues of Norman kings nor the frescoes were executed, and only the stained glass window portraying Edward the Confessor hints at this scheme. Queen Victoria is depicted twice in the room, as a young woman in the other stained glass window, and near the end of her life sitting on the throne at the House of Lords, in a copy of a 1900 painting by Jean-Joseph Benjamin Constant, which hangs on the eastern wall. The 16 plinths intended for the statues now house busts of Prime Ministers who have sat in the House of Lords, such as the Earl Grey and the Marquis of Salisbury. A double door opposite the stairs leads to the Royal Gallery and another to the right to the robing room. The King's robing room, usually referred to simply as the robing room, lies at the southern end of the ceremonial axis of the palace 
and occupies the centre of the building's south front, overlooking the Victoria Tower Gardens. As its name indicates, it is where the Sovereign prepares for the state opening of Parliament by donning official robes and wearing the Imperial State Crown. The focus of this richly decorated room is the Chair of State. It sits on a dais of three steps under a canopy adorned with the arms and floral emblems of England, Scotland and Ireland. A panel of purple velvet forms the backdrop of the chair, embroidered by the Royal School of Needlework with the Royal Arms, surrounded by stairs and the VR monograms. Edward Barry designed both the chair, the cushion and the back, of which are also embroidered, and the ornate marble fireplace across the room, which features gilded statuettes of St George and St Michael. The decorative theme of the room is the legend of King Arthur, considered by many Victorians the source of their nationhood. Five frescoes painted by William Dice between 1848 and 1864 cover the walls, depicting allegorical scenes from the legend. Each scene represents a chivalric virtue. The largest, between the two doors, is titled Admission of Sir Tristram to the Round Table and illustrates the virtue of hospitality. Seven were originally commissioned, but the remaining two paintings were not carried out due to the artist's death and on the wallpapered. And on the wallpapered panels flanking the chair of the state hang oil portraits of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert by Franz Xavier Winterhalter. Other decorations in the room are also inspired by the Arthurian legend, namely a series of 18 bias reliefs. Beneath the paintings, carved in oak by Henry Hugh Armstead, and the frieze running below the ceiling, which displays the attributed coats of arms to the knights of the round table. The ceiling itself is decorated with heraldic badges, as is the border of the wooden floor, which is left bare, with the carpeting being moved to one side of it. The robing room was also briefly used as the House of Lords meeting chamber, while the House of Lords chamber was occupied by the House of Commons, whose chamber had been destroyed by the Blitz in 1941. So, I hope you've enjoyed our second part look at the Palace of Westminster, now going into more detail about some of the areas, some of the rooms, and some of the towers here at the Palace of Westminster. Join us next time when we look at some more of the rooms, and also some of the areas and some of the things called lobbies, and what they actually do. If you'd like to make contact with us and suggest any future podcasts for the future, then please do make contact with us through londonvisited.co.uk or through any of our social media. It's really that easy. Thanks very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye. Thanks for listening and please don't forget to subscribe to get more shows direct to your device. Also, why not visit our London Visited YouTube channel to get even more of London. Catch you soon on the next one.